0: This morning's message will be from Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34. If you would um, need a Bible, there's some under the chairs, and this is on page 7 in the Green Bible. And if it's a blue and white Bible like this, it's on page 528. If you would please stand with me as we read this passage together. And just to remind us, the reason we stand isn't just out of a religious religious ritual or just rote routine, like just stand just for the sake of it. But it's a just a way to honor God's word, and we believe this is his word, and so as we stand, we desire to honor him in that, but also in our hearts um, submit to what he has to, to speak to us this morning. So starting in verse twenty seven it says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the words crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. You may be seated.
1: I'm going to pray now, and we're going to go into Matthew chapter 9. <coughs> uh, so let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this time where we can open up your word And as always, Lord, we know that this is a a very, a very important time whenever we study your word together corporately or whenever we read your word personally and devotionally each day. That these are the times where the God of the universe, the one who created everything is going to speak to us, that you speak through your word and that specifically when you speak through your word, that you point us to Jesus, that these words bear witness about Jesus the ultimate object of our affections, the ultimate object of our gospel salvation. And so we pray that as we look at this, um, that these won't just be information that we merely exchange with a book, but these words will lead us to Christ and ignite a deep passion to want to live for Christ. Lord, I pray for myself that you would, that you would give me um, the desperation of, of being able to understand the gravity of, before me, that whenever anyone stands to preach your word, that this is always a serious moment. Some people say it when you're standing between two worlds, between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, and you're pleading for the earthly realm to know Christ. Lord, that the gravity of that would be uh, weighty upon my shoulders, and that because of that, I know and I plead for your help that there's no way, if that's the truth, that I can do this on my own power, and I don't want to. So, Lord, I pray for us all, including my own soul, that you would display Christ and his gospel in front of us as the most clear precious reality in the world and that we would hope in that. We love you God and we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so last week we were in Matthew 9 and we started at verse 18 and verse 18 through 26 in chapter 9 served for us to be part 1 of a two-part sermon. So today we're picking up in the second part of this sermon and the the big idea From Matthew 9, starting at verse 18, all the way down to verse 34 today. um, The big idea of this is that we're going to see authoritative demonstrations of Jesus' trustworthiness. I know it's a lot of words, so let me kind of break it down for you. Chapters 8 and 9, the big idea that he's wanting us to see in chapters 8 and 9 is that Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ, this man, has authority over everything. Over everything, and he's demonstrating that through the healings, through uh, forgiving sin, through calming storms, through speaking into demoniacs and, and having authority over the supernatural. He's demonstrating this authoritative power that Jesus had all over the course of chapters 8 and 9. And now as we're moving into the second part of chapters 8 and 9, the first half of 9, we saw that he has the authority to live out and, and pursue this mission of his, to call people to, to Christ so that they'll start calling people. And so as we go on into the second half, this authority, he's wanting to demonstrate authoritative demonstrations of trustworthiness. So last week, we focused in on uh, chapter 9, looking at verse 18 through 26 or actually through the rest of 34, we're, we're focusing in on and trying to lift off this trustworthiness of Jesus. And so a lot of us as Christians would absolutely say, of course I trust Jesus. He's Jesus. I mean, He's God in flesh. That's crazy not to trust Jesus. Why would, why would that be such an important thing to want to understand? Um, and so what, what we came to understand is um, That trusting Jesus is uh, an obvious thing in our life. But for many of us, including myself, we're able to take the easier things to trust and we're, we're able to give those things to Jesus and say, I totally trust you with those. But every single one of us have kind of a bank of things over here that those things are more difficult. And so God's saying that I want you to just trust me, not with the easy things but with the even more difficult things, the, the salvation of your, your children that might be wavered or fill in the blank. The, uh, if you're single and you know you want to be married, God, I trust you with that. Or if you're um, in a relationship, I trust you, God, that you'll keep this relationship pure. I need to bank on your promises that if I hope in you that I'll be pure. So there's all kinds of things that we can fill in the blank there with trustworthiness. Now, last week... I'm just going to kind of do a small little review and then we'll jump in. Last week, one of the main things that we saw was Jairus and this woman that had an issue of blood. Both of them were shown to us. And Jairus had a name and everybody knew who he was. And this woman who had an issue of blood, nobody knew who she was. And what we saw in both of them, whether they're well-known and high members of society or low members of society, and no one knows who they are, is there was this sense of desperation within both of their hearts. They had a massive issue in their life and they were completely desperate for Jesus to change that. And so um, because of this desperation, they had to demonstrate uh, trust in Jesus. And so we're carrying over from that. So here's the two things we saw last week. Uh, And the first one was really 18 through 34 and that. Jesus is fulfilling all the healings, all the prophecies that were said of him. And so Jesus is trustworthy to accomplish his mission. That was the first thing that we saw. The first demonstration of of trustworthiness is that he is trustworthy to accomplish his mission. And one of those parts of the mission was to heal people. And we see that as he's going through the narrative, that's exactly what he's doing. He's fulfilling all the things that were said in the Old Testament, and he's literally doing them. And when people do what they say, they're trustworthy. The second thing that we saw... Is And that was more involved in just that specific narrative with Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood is that Jesus is trustworthy when you're isolated and when you're desperate. Um, The woman with the issue of blood is definitely more an isolated uh, figure of society than Jairus, but they were both desperate. And whenever you're isolated and desperate and you come to Christ and you say, I have nowhere else to go, Jesus, but you then he's trustworthy to help you. He's not going to say, oh, where were you whenever everything was going great? He doesn't scorn you for coming to him in desperation. Instead, he's merciful and he's trustworthy to help you in that situation. So those are the first two things that we saw. Now we're going to begin in Matthew 9, our time at verse number 27. And there's going to be two more sets of Stories that we're going to see and we're going to stop and end this particular section on the authority of Jesus at nine thirty four. And the next week is when we're going to start a whole new section, compassion and commission, a five week series on the compassion and commissioning of people. That's that's next week. So anyway, we're going to stop at thirty four today and that'll end a different section of Matthew. Um, and we'll go into next another one. So let me read to you as a as a this 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 verse. And Luke is going to serve for us as a bit of a springboard into our into our time today, and it's going to serve us and helping us understand uh, the healings of Jesus and what's 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 this point of of these healings that he keeps doing? Why is he doing these healings? Um, why is he doing it in this particular part of his three year ministry and and you know, all those kinds of things? So let's look at Matthew. I'm sorry, Luke, chapter four, um, and you can just flip over. It's two books to the right, and we'll be back in Matthew nine, or you can just listen. But we're in Matthew. I'm sorry, Luke, I keep saying Matthew, we're in Luke chapter four, uh, starting at verse uh, 16. It says, and he came to Nazareth. This is this is the beginning of his public ministry. We know that Jesus lived 30 years and at age 30, he began that public ministry, which he did for three years. And then after those three years, he went to the cross. So this is right at the beginning of those three years, the the inauguration of of his public ministry. And it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. So all this is customary. Whenever someone's going to read, they would be given the scroll and they would read it. But he is going to read this scroll in a, in a completely different manner. Look what he says. He, he unruns the scroll and he founds the place where it was written. And he reads this particular part of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To proclaim the good news. This is the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And look at this. Recovering sight to the blind. This will serve uh, in our particular set of verses today. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so he rolls up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. And notice the attitudes of everyone. It says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today... This scripture, this prophecy of the, of the prophet Isaiah has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So we can see that this is an inauguration of him going into this public ministry where he's going to start doing those actual things that are prophesied in Isaiah, healing people and doing these kinds of things. So what I want us to do is, since that's serving for us as our beginning point, what I want to say is, okay... What's the point then of this three year period and what's the point of the things that he does? Why does he have? Why doesn't he just uh, at the beginning of the three year period say I'm the Christ and I'm going to the cross and just kind of leave out the public ministry part and just go ahead and die for us. Why does he want to fill three years with doing healings and why healings? Why not something else? And so uh, what we've seen in chapters eight and nine specific to these healings is Matthew's painstakingly trying to point this out to us is that. Physical deformities, physical things that are wrong are more than just physical things that are wrong. They're serving for us to be a depiction of spiritual realities. That whenever a a paralyzed man lays on the floor, unable to do anything for himself, this is spiritually what's true of us. That we are dead in our sins, unable to do anything, and that we need to be um, made alive in Christ. Or whenever we see... Uh, the leper or the woman with the issue of blood who is ceremonially unclean and they're made clean or they're healed from their physical ailment. This is also spiritually what's true of us, that we are unclean spiritually and we need to be made clean spiritually. So you can see that there's, and in, even in today, that there's a man, there's two men who are blind, that before we come to Christ, that we are spiritually blind, incapable of knowing him, but he makes us be able to see. We once were blind, but now we see. So this... All these physical uh, things that are going on are all serving for us to be spiritual realities. And that's the point of the healings. That's why he spends three years doing healings. It wasn't that he just wanted to kind of go on the road for a little bit. He wanted to heal people and preach the gospel to them so that whenever they saw these physical things, he could point to the greater thing saying that thing that just happened, that serves to something greater so you can understand that you were dead spiritually and you need Christ. So we have the we we can see what the point is. All right. So James Boyce, picking up that idea, comparing healings physically to what's going on spiritually. This is what he says. We're all unclean. We're all isolated, like uh, the woman with the issue of blood. We're all hopeless. We're all desperate. We're all dead in our sins. And these healings, they show us that to be saved from sin, we need the powerful, forgiving, saving grace of God, which is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. Notice that all these stories that Matthew's showing us, there is one commonality. Every single person goes to Jesus to be healed. They go to Jesus. And so that's what's trying to be shown to us is that he is the one with the authority. He is the one that is to be come to so that we can be spiritually healed. And so... The third thing I want you to see, we, I just reviewed the first two. Here's, here's our first one for today. And the third one, uh, authoritative demonstration of trustworthiness is this, is that Jesus is trustworthy. And I'm just kind of pulling out the theme here in verses 27 through 31. Jesus is trustworthy to those who are spiritually blind. He's trustworthy to those who are spiritually blind, which means he's trustworthy to every single one of us. Because at one time, every single one of us, We're spiritually blind if we were outside of Christ. If we're inside of Christ, then if we've put our faith in him because of his work on the cross for us on our behalf and all of his righteousness has been transferred to us and all of our sin has been put on him and he paid the penalty for our death, that's the gospel. Then now we're inside of Christ, but we're still, we're spiritually blind and now we see. So the the third thing I want us to see is that Jesus is trustworthy to those who are spiritually blind. Let's, let's look at the text specifically and, and, and see this being demis- demonstrated to us. 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. So we can see uh, Christ just finished healing some people. He starts passing on and virtually it's, it seems like he is completely ignoring the blind man. It, he's completely it says that they passed by and two blind men followed him crying aloud and he just went into the house. So it's not the idea. I don't think is not that Jesus is following and he sees two blind men yelling from him. He's just like oh, blind people and he just keeps going into the house and he doesn't want to help out blind people. That's not the case at all. Um, instead, verse 30 serves to tell us what it is of why he seems to be ignoring him. Um, he's in a public setting as they're asking, and he's not wanting to do it in a public setting, obviously, because he goes into the house, and then we see that he does it, and in verse 30, after he does it, he sternly warns them to tell no one. So what we see here is not that Jesus has some kind of um, negative thoughts towards blind people. Instead, which would be insane, um, he wants to do this in a private manner because... He's wanting to maintain what we've called before as this messianic secret. We talked about this before um, in 8-4. After he healed the leopard, he says, See to it that you say nothing to anyone. So there's a sense in which he's wanting to maintain this messianic secret, which is, yes, I'm the Messiah, but it's not time yet for people to know. And... If you go tell everybody, everybody's just going to start following me and want to be healed. And all I'm going to be known as is a mere uh, healer. And that's not all I am. I'm actually coming to die on a cross. And so don't tell anybody. So that's what happens. And it says that they were yelling and crying aloud. So we hear, just like the previous set of verses, that there's a desperation in their voice, which is true. Everybody we must have a desperate, a sense of desperation uh, whenever things are going on in our lives that we know that we have to turn to Christ. There's desperation. And they yell, have mercy on us, son of David, son of David. Now, this title son of David is certainly a messianic title, certainly a messianic title. And it comes as no surprise that Matthew employs it in his gospel because we know that Matthew's writing to the Jews, writing to those who are Jewish, and he's wanting to continually point them back to the Old Testament Scriptures and help them see that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, just as one little small piece of evidence, in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the very first verse, he says, the book of the genealogy, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David and Abraham served as two huge figures in the history of Israel. And so these weren't like people they didn't know. All the Jews knew who he was. And so Matthew picks up that. Surely they probably used the word son of David, but Matthew puts that specifically in his gospel because um, these two sets of stories right here, where it's that Jesus healing the two blind man and this man that's unable to speak because of the demon, verses 27 through 34, those two uh, narratives are not in Mark and Luke. This is the only place that the Bible speaks of these particular stories. Uh, he does heal people that are blind and he does heal people that are mute. But these two stories are just exclusive to Matthew. And so he says, um, son of David. So he's pointing back to the to the Davidic covenant in second Samuel seven, where God promises to bless David and through him a king would come. He's pointing that back and he's using this this name trying to point out to all the people that he is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the one who was written about in the Old Testament. And it says he entered the house and then the blind man didn't get an answer. And so they pursued Christ. They decided, well, he hasn't healed us yet, but we know he can. So we're going to go into sometimes we have to be that persistent in warning things and prayer. But we see that they're persistent in going in and they go into the house. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And so he asks this question, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, belief um, being used here, the word believe is in the verb tense. It's also used many times in these two chapters in the noun sense, which is the word faith. So in the Greek words, uh, pistos is the word. Uh, Belief and faith, this is the same thing. So Matthew, as he's writing, he's going to use it the very next verse in 29, faith. And there's, there's a, a bit of a reoccurring theme in faith as we're going through this. We see uh, that, that there's a, a definite need in order to be healed that faith be uh, coupled with this need for healing. You can see that in 810 where the centurion exercises faith and Jesus says, never have I seen such faith. You can see it in 826 where Jesus talks about the disciples having little faith. Um, you can also see it in 9-2 where he looks at the, uh, the paralytic and he says, take heart where he saw the the people's faith, and then he healed the the paralytic. You can see it in 9.22, where he tells the the woman with the issue of blood to take heart, daughter, because your faith has made you well. And we see it again here. So faith is a reoccurring theme in chapters 8 and 9, and it's because um, faith is so key into our healing, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Um, But I just wanted to point that out as we're going to it. And so Jesus asks him this question. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you trust that me as the Messiah, that I am capable to do this? Do you trust me? This is this is no small issue in their life. This is being able to see is a huge issue. Now, certainly it benefits them. But nevertheless, it is a large issue in their life. And he asks them, do you trust me? So for us, the same is true. Not just the smaller issues in your life, but the larger issues in your life. He's asking, do you trust me? Do you believe that I'm able to do this thing? And we want to be just like the men and say, yes, Lord, I believe it. So whatever situation you're in right now where you're finding yourself, and this is no doubt probably a large situation in your life where you're finding it difficult to exercise faith. He's asking, do you trust me? And he wants us to say, yes. Do we feel desperate enough to come to him and like these blind men say, I need you to work right now. And he's asking, do you believe? And so then it says, they say, yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes and he he heals everybody differently. um, Always, because if he healed them all the same, then we would say, this is the way people are healed. And then we'd have like a class on it um, and of healing. And so he doesn't heal them all the same way. And he says, he touched their eyes saying, look at this. According to your faith, be it done to you. According to your faith. Be it done to you. Now, this is not in proportion to your faith, which is really good news. It's not, um, well, the amount of faith that you have in me is the proportionate kind of healing. So if you have a small faith, then you're just going to be lifted to legally blind. And if you have an even greater faith, then you'll just need glasses. But if you have great faith, then now you can finally see. It's It's not in proportion to your faith. It's according to your faith. Be it great or small then the healing is absolute and finite and completely done. Now, here's the good news. I'm not just trying to say a little funny joke. I mean, there's good news for that because every single one of us here has a measure of faith that the Lord gives us. That's what Romans 12 says. Some of us find ourselves with weak faith and some of us might find ourselves with great faith. And this is all a gift from God, no doubt. But sometimes we think because of my weak faith, then I'm only going to be healed small amounts. And that's not the case. Faith heals. That's the good news. That is a great promise for any of us who have weak hearted. We have such difficulty in putting our faith in God because that's just who we are. Maybe we're wired. Maybe we have a past that makes it that way. The great news about Jesus, the God that we serve and the God that we love is he doesn't he doesn't heal our our brokenness. The gospel isn't just some kind of half hearted feeling in proportion to our weak faith. Instead, Whatever our faith is, this great God heals us to the end. You are completely forgiven by the cross, not in proportion to your faith. That's good news for weak hearted people like me and maybe like you. So he says this, that according to your faith, it is done. So let's try to understand if we can this relationship between faith, which is necessary, and the healing. Um, So in one sense, it's not faith that heals at all. Um, We know that it's not faith that heals at all. We know it's God that heals. We know that God's the one who heals. God's the one who saves. God's the one who transforms. Jesus, the whole point of 8 and 9 is, Jesus is the one with the authority to do all this thing. He does it. So in one sense, we want to elevate and highlight the absolute authority that Christ has to do these things. But coupled with that, we also want to understand that faith still serves a purpose. Faith is not the end. It is not the object in which we're striving for. Faith is a means. We don't have faith in faith. That's ridiculous. We have faith as a means to an object. And the reoccurring theme in 8 and 9 always is the object is Jesus. So faith is an important part, but faith must be in Christ. That's why in these last portions, Matthew's wanting us to see he's so trustworthy. And you have to believe that he's trustworthy because he's the only object of which your faith needs to find its rest. Can't be in anything else. It must be in Christ. Then it says this. And their eyes were opened. And their eyes were opened. Now, I've already said That these physical healings serve for us to be the spiritual realities of what's the truth for us. So this is a beautiful line. This is a beautiful line. Their eyes were opened. They were able to now see colors. As a matter of fact, how beautiful is it that he touched them, which means... Implicitly, that he was before them, and so as he heals them, the first things that they open their eyes and see is the Savior of the universe. I mean, that's just pretty amazing. If you're going to see something for the first time, the fact that it's Jesus is pretty amazing. But it says that they their eyes were opened, and so this is what is the case for us. Whenever we were spiritually dead, and he makes it so that we're not blinded, but now we see, our eyes are opened. This is a beautiful, beautiful reality. This is a great way to highlight the gospel. That whenever we put our faith in Christ, he literally opens up your eyes and darkness was before you. And now multitudes of colors are filling your eyes, displaying the wonder and the worship and the worthiness of Jesus right before your face. That is what has happened for us in the gospel. That's why when we say Jesus is trustworthy to those who are spiritually blind, He's trustworthy to all of us because now we are seeing the array of all the beautiful colors of the worship and worthiness of Christ. So their eyes were open figuratively or literally. Yes, absolutely. Um, that was kind of a joke there because um, it was both. All right. And then notice this little um, this the little stern warning he gives and Again, this is why I, I think that he went into the house rather than healing publicly because he didn't want to do it publicly, he wanted to do it privately. If I said that wrong before, that's what I meant. And it says, Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows. See that no one knows about it. <laughs> I mean, if, in one way, it's a little bit funny, right? Blind people. Like, people know them. See that no one knows that you're not blind anymore. All right, then do I just keep walking around for the rest of my... Like, so what is he trying to say? Because honestly, in one sense, this is not going to happen. Like, people are going to, wait a second. Something's new about you. Did you get a haircut? You have glasses? What is it? Oh, you can see. You can see. So there's, in one sense, like... Keeping it a secret that no one knows that you were blind um, is not necessarily the point. What he means is not keep what's been done, but in, in essence, we can say, see that no one knows that I did this. It's not my time yet. I don't want anyone to know that Jesus is the one. So I guess he's telling them, and this is just a, an inf- a guess, that he's saying, let people know that you can see that you've been made well, but don't let them know that I, that I did it. I mean, you can't keep vision from people. Um, So it says that, see that no one knows about it, but they do directly disobey. We, We see in verse 31, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Now, in one sense, spreading his fame for us is an absolute great thing to do. Like, not in one sense, in every sense. We're supposed to spread his fame, but we're post-cross. So you can never, ever disobey verse 31, spreading his fame. But in this sense, it was pre-cross, and he, Jesus was trying to fulfill his father's plan perfectly, and it wasn't time yet. All right, so let me, let me show out the fourth reason, show you the fourth reason why Jesus is trustworthy. And it's right there in verse 30. All right, here it is. Verse 30. Jesus is trustworthy to go to the cross and die for our sins. Jesus is trustworthy to go to the cross and die for our sins. How do we know that? Because he tells them, see that no one knows about it. See that no one knows about it. God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross was um, set in eternity past for all time it wasn't that one day they were kind of the, the the trinity was up in heaven like i got it i know what we can do from eternity past this plan was set and the son has always been in perfect submission to the will of the father always been in perfect submission to the will of the father and here we see that by saying this statement see that no one um, knows about this what he's in turn doing is saying I know that my father's plan is for me to have three years of public ministry and after that go to the cross, and not a minute too soon should I do it. Or should I, I don't want my name to get out as this big healer and just be known as this awesome healer and go on a tour and start having the healing tour um, so that my name's been fame's being spread and then I don't go to the cross. So, what we see here is that Jesus is wanting to submit himself. Perfectly to the will of the Father in every single detail all the way. So Jesus is trustworthy to go to the cross and die. It wasn't just his will of the Father just to live three years and, and do healings. It was the will of the Father at the end of that time to go to the cross and die. And he does every single detail perfectly of the will of the Father all along the way. He's trustworthy to go to the cross and die for your sin. He did it and mine that is astounding to think that an innocent man completely innocent out of love for his children obeys the will of the father perfectly at every step with Matthew 4 says that he was tempted. I mean, when we see that set of narrative in Matthew 4, 1 through 12, where the temptations of the devil, the point of that is the devil is trying to tempt him to set up the kingdom now. Make it now. Forget the cross. Be well known now. And he's like, no, that's not the will of the Father. I will be made known one day. I will rule and reign completely in every single thing one day, although he does in a sense already. I'm going to be perfectly obedient to the will of the Father and go to the cross and die. I'm not going to disobey that. And when he does that, and he did that, he demonstrates himself as perfectly trustworthy for us. So (laughs) the obvious question, if Jesus is trustworthy to do the the perfect will of the Father completely, the, the greatest act of human history ever, If he's trustworthy to carry that out, isn't he trustworthy to handle your situations? If God the Father can trust him with the greatest act in human history, I'm pretty sure that we can trust him with the things in our life. So, they disobeyed, they went out, and they spread his fame. Um, And now we go into this last little quick narrative about the mute man who was possessed by a demon and this demon possession caused him to be mute. Now, not every demon possession causes people to be mute. We know that there was another man that was possessed by a demon. Um, Actually, it was two demon-possessed men in 828 and Jesus heals them Uh, and they weren't mute, but here this one was. He was unable to speak and we see that he was healed to speak spiritually, that's the case for us. We've been healed to speak. Now, let's look at the text 32. It says they were going away um, as they were going away. Behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And obviously, whoever was brought to him said that he's you know, demon possessed and mute and indicated his need. And when the demon had been cast out, so Matthew fast forwards through this, through this details pretty fast. So obviously Jesus, yes, I'll heal you and does the healing. And in 33, when the demon possessed man had been cast out, um, the mute man spoke. Now what I want us to see here in this uh, verses 33 and 34, we're going to see three acts of speaking. The first two are good. The third one is opposition. Um, so let's see. Let's see it here. And when he was healed, the mute man spoke. Now we have no idea what the mute man spoke, and really it seems to be of no consequence whatsoever uh, what he said. But instead, that he spoke, the fact that he spoke is bearing witness to the fact that Jesus's authority has been demonstrated and his trustworthiness to heal him has been demonstrated. So the fact that he spoke is all we need. Matthew doesn't need to tell us what he said; just the fact that he spoke. He was mute. Now he can speak. Authority of of Jesus demonstrated. Then we move to the next, the second speakers. Um, Still good for Jesus. And it says, the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never. So we see that they have an attitude of marveling, which is a good thing. And then they they throw out this somewhat exaggerated statement. Um, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Not exactly 100% 100% true, a little bit of hyperbole in there. If you read the Old Testament, there's some pretty amazing things that Israel had seen, no question whatsoever. But nevertheless, they speak in such a manner that's um, illustrating for us the trustworthiness and the authority of Jesus. And now we have the third speakers, the naysayers, if you will, the Pharisees. And it says this, um, but the Pharisees, and that's just kind of a reoccurring theme. In the Gospels. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so, thus still continues the Pharisaical opposition to Jesus. Just in this chapter alone, the Pharisees in 9 3 have called him a blasphemer. In 9.11, criticizing for eating with sinners, as if they aren't sinners, but criticizing for eating with sinners. And now in 9.34, they claim for his power to be from Satan. So we can see continued opposition of the Pharisees in the face of Jesus. Now, here's the fifth reason Jesus is trustworthy, the, the fifth authoritative demonstration of the trustworthiness of Jesus. Jesus is trustworthy in the face of scorn and slander. He's trustworthy in the face of scorn and slander. The statements that the Pharisees make are slanderous. They're saying that he is using the power of Satan as he's doing these particular things. Um, Jesus is wickedly being spoken of here. Particularly by the Pharisees. Calvin says this. He says, when wickedness has reached the height of blindness, there is no work of God, however evident, which it will pervert. So whenever wickedness hates God, everything that God does, wickedness will say, oh, that's just a perversion of Satan. Wickedness, that's the way it is. And so we see here that Jesus, in the face of scorn and slander, is to be trusted. How is he to be trusted? Let me show you. The Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout the cities and villages teaching. He, did, he lets them make the statement, and he, that's it. Like, he's done with them for this particular time. Now, in Matthew 12, 25, they make the same claim, and then he, adjo- he addresses the nonsensical argument. He says, oh, yeah, well, how's the house going to stand if it's divided against itself? That makes no sense. I can't buy my own power cast out by myself. So he's going to address it in 1225. And we see in Matthew 23 where he just blasts the Pharisees. But Jesus knows when is the appropriate time to address scorn and slander and when not. Um, and so when wickedness is spoken against us like this, many times, um, if you're like me, the appropriate time is not always... Utilized. <laughs> A lot of times we, we speak out, and if we speak out at the wrong time, we say the wrong things. But here Jesus shows us perfect, perfect perseverance when wickedness is spoken, spoken against them. This is what, what uh, D.A. Carson says regarding this. He says, For most of us, it is very hard to persevere with calm integrity when we are so thoroughly misunderstood and so systematically slandered. However, Jesus was not only proved trustworthy in the face of scorn and slander, but he also did it precisely because it was part of his mission to do so. The movement is towards the cross. So he knows at this particular time that if I keep myself quiet, these that's being obedient to the perfect will of the father. And it moves me more and more closer to what I came to do, which is die on the cross. He's trustworthy even in the details of handling scorn and slander against him because he knows how to obey the Father's will perfectly. He knows how to obey the Father's will perfectly. So, we're going to conclude here. And I just want to kind of lift off just a couple things out of the text for us. And then we're going to go into the Lord's Supper. And I'm hoping that these conclusions... um, will serve to be gospel-centered and will we'll drive us into our time as we take the Lord's Supper, as we take the body broken for us and the blood shed for us, remembering that it has cleansed us from all of our sin. So let me just try to highlight a couple things for us here. First of all, 27 through 31, we're seeing spiritually blind, uh, uh, physically blind men being healed and being made able to see. And this is what's true of us. That because of the broken body of Jesus and the bloodshed of Jesus, that we who were spiritually dead and blind have been made able to see the wonder and worthiness of Christ. And that we're supposed to live a life of worship for him. And that's because of his work on the cross. We also see in verse 30, as he sternly tells these people, not go tell anybody, that he is completely submitting himself to the will of the Father To go to the cross and die. Which just puts on display his absolute, utter love and compassion. Not just for um, the people in these narratives that are being healed. But for us as well. That he would be willing to go to the cross specifically for you and for your sin. That's the compassion and mercy and love he has for you. That he would give his own body and blood. That you can be perfectly counted righteous in the eyes of the Father. That's, that's really good news. And then we see here that in the face of scorn and slander, he keeps his eyes on the main goal, which is the cross. Doesn't have to answer, but instead lets it go. He does answer it at the right time. He's Jesus, so he, he can't answer it at the perfect right time. And there will be times for us to answer people who are wickedly misunderstanding us and systematically slandering us or saying things against us because we're Christians i can't believe you do that that's so you know that's so crazy you're crazy for doing that you don't know what you're talking about etc the the things you might feel the words you might hear because you're a christian but also shown to us in 32 through 34 is this this man was healed so that he could speak And you've been healed spiritually so that you may speak of His wondrous love. So that you may speak this glorious gospel to those who don't know Him. We're going to go into our time of Lord's Supper and then worship. And so I just invite you to um, take some time to think and pray and reflect and use this as a time to really think on what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And if maybe a long, it's been a long time where you haven't found a deep satisfaction and joy and trust in Jesus, that you would see that and hope in that and believe in that. Because the God of the universe has entrusted Him to do the ultimate act of human history. You can certainly trust Him with whatever's going on in your life. God can trust him with the cross. You can trust Jesus with anything in your life. Let's pray.